I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 253 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Nick Stock. He's here to present, Does the Teacher Enjoy Thinking Through Educational Enjoyment with Lacan? Dr. Nicholas Stock is an independent researcher currently exploring Lacanian psychoanalysis as an approach to unraveling the desire of teachers. He has other interests in post-structuralist philosophy and radical political theory. He holds a doctorate in philosophy of education from the University of Birmingham and is also an English teacher in an inner city sixth form college. He tweets at 89stock. For links to his website and papers, visit renderingunconscious.org. You can support Rendering Unconscious podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl, where we do post exclusive content every week. We've also started a Substack where we also post weekly exclusive content at vanessa23carl.substack.com. So choose whichever platform you prefer. Thank you so very much for your support. Rendering Unconscious Podcast is a passion project. I do everything myself. Someone recently contacted me and they were surprised to learn that I do all the editing, recording, posting, uh, website, everything I run on my own. I have no backing from anyone. I don't accept any money from advertisers or anything that has approached me of that kind of regard. I only... Uh, get support from our Patreon community and now our Substack community. So thank you so much for your support. If you've enjoyed Rendering Unconscious over the years, it would be great for you to sign up. It really makes me feel good to see that people appreciate the podcast and want to support us here, want to support me here, I should say. So um, who I am, as we said, I'm, I'm Nick. I'm an English teacher, primarily by trade. I've worked um, in school for six years and then in a sixth form college for six years after that. I teach um, English A-level at the moment. Um, also did my PhD at University of Birmingham, finished that a couple of years ago, um, primarily in kind of post-structuralist philosophy, but have moved over to psychoanalysis in the last kind of couple of years. Um, and so my talk is kind of an intersection of lots of those interests, um, but originally, I was mostly interested in education at the kind of the biggest possible level, but I've been narrowing, down, narrowing that down to the level of the teacher, and, and the teacher's what I want to talk about today. Okay, uh, let's make sure that works. Okay, so what is there to enjoy as a teacher in 2023? Though national education has been an enunciated concern for politicians for the past few decades... The recent right-wing turn in UK politics has made more overt reaches towards the education system that it perhaps falsely believes poses a threat to the supposedly neoliberal status quo. Recent policy shifts have made it illegal to overtly teach anti-capitalism in the classroom, have decreed that the colonially inflected British values must be supported and upheld, 
demanded that trans students are reported to their parents and carers, and false claims are often made about the cancellation of books as part of education's supposedly woke agenda. The absurd demand is repeatedly made that teachers must remain politically neutral in an institution that is fundamentally political in its history and structure. Right. Um, Sunak's undoubtedly bogus but powerfully performative claim to continue maths teaching through to age 18 demonstrates a notable lurch towards the prioritisation of STEM subjects, uh, which are narrowed in their scope and radicality as STEM, in tandem with humanities and arts being pushed to the periphery of state and post-92 university education. Funding is regularly withdrawn for these areas, and many humanities departments are facing mass redundancies. Students are far less likely to choose English, art or history, opting for subjects that they deem to be preparing them directly for a career. Um, and so teaching these subjects is, of course, you know, becoming more and more difficult. Uh, many have spoken of the accompanying marketisation of education and its heavy focus on learning's instrumental value, with education reduced to a grade on a CV that will enable the quick acquisition of a well-paying job, something abetted by the highly competitive and performance-driven uh, nature of exam culture in schools. Many have noticed an authoritarian shift in the profession, both in classroom practice and in governmental policy. The likes of Catherine Burblesing and the Michaela School ideology are being pushed into mainstream discourse, with much airtime given to her and other similar ideologues' views concerning perhaps archaic forms of discipline in the classroom. Clearly such schools, with their pride in British values, are the masthead for future education projects that we should expect to see emulated in the continued academisation of the state school system. What is called slant and other similar authoritarian apparatuses have become commonplace in schools, with politicians and media figures espousing the virtues of silence in corridors and manufactured student attention. Ofsted remain a looming predatorial figure, commonly cited as the largest pressure for teaching staff and management. This has been reflected in the tragedy of a headteacher's suicide, a moment that has inspired the refusal to let Ofsted through the door by another school. Poor funding... Huge amounts of planning and preparation, marking, data and administrative workloads alongside the continued rise in teacher observation, surveillance and performance management have pushed the sector and its university cousins into a wave of national strikes for the first time in many years. Thus far, they have been demonstrably ineffective in shifting political opinions and the media regularly portrays them as lazy, entitled and greedy. Many teachers live in fear of being filmed or photographed by their students, facing being turned into a meme or being doxxed, becoming the public property of the digital sphere. Numerous schools report a misogynistic turn in their male student behaviour, with the manosphere and incel community becoming an apparent threat to teachers. There is a 93% rise in teacher vacancies from before the pandemic, and recent figures show that the government has been unable to meet its recruitment targets for trainee secondary teachers, having reached only 59% of the target for trainees recruited for ITT in the years 22 to 23, down from 79% in 21 to 22. Such figures actually suggest that even before the current crisis, there was a significant shortfall in both retention and recruitment into the profession. None of this is to speak of the daily complaints and concerns that I hear in my staff room, as I'm sure many of you do too, as the daily life of the teacher becomes an untenable position. Hearing the list of political, economic and social issues faced by educators, perhaps it is not hard to understand why fewer teachers are entering the profession, and neither is it difficult to understand why more and more teachers are leaving. What is interesting here 
for me at least, is the reason that many people do still choose to enter teaching, and indeed many choose to stay. In spite of the obvious shortfall, 22,991 people chose to begin teacher training in 2022. There are still well over 600,000 teachers practising in the UK and 200,000 lecturers of HE. So this accounts for getting close to a million people in the UK. And this hasn't even begun to address similar situations across Europe and America, with, of course, many, many more people choosing to teach there that would expand this figure. So one wonders why such a significant number of people would still choose to be teachers. Why would anyone want to teach at all in this current state of affairs? Who would do this? Why would they do it? What do they want? Are they enjoying? So, the likes of political theory and philosophy have a role to play in answering these questions. Though my contention is that it is through psychoanalytical thinking, especially in the works of Jacques Lacan, but I'll probably say Lacan because my French is really terrible, uh, that answers may be proffered. Lacan is difficult to read and willfully abstruse at times, perhaps making him lesser read than many other theorists for educational research purposes. His concepts and terms are notoriously tricky, and I will do my best to explain them as I go, because they're fundamental to the arguments I'm making here. But please do feel free to ask for any definitions at the end of the talk, or even during, you know, I'm ever the teacher, and uh, I enjoy it when people ask me questions, and the reasons for that will maybe become clear later on. Um, though some people stalk, uh, still talk about Lacan and Freud and, and psychoanalysis, um, in the Anglophone world, at least, psychoanalysis has fallen out of vogue in its practical sense some time ago. Uh, most talking therapies are being substituted by cognitive behavioural approaches that ignore Freud's insights through a dismissal of the unconscious. Many educational thinkers, too, are resistant to the idea of psychoanalysis, Freud noted that this resistance is fundamental to psychoanalysis within the very process of undergoing it. And Derrida goes on a step further to say that one actually must resist psychoanalysis, um, that the very structure of what the discipline is um, in actually kind of brings uh, resistance from most people with it. Um, so it has a resistance both in terms of the subject on the couch and its scholarly reception. But when it comes to asking questions about whether teachers are enjoying themselves, what they want and what they desire, psychoanalysis seems more suited than most to ask these questions. The relationship between psychoanalysis and teaching has repeatedly been made, uh, firstly by Freud himself, but then later by figures like Bruno Bettelheim, um, Donald Winnicott, Melanie Klein and even Lacan himself. Freud famously referred to education as one of his impossible professions alongside politics and psychoanalysis, um, perhaps implying that there is kind of an unthinkable nature of an educational terminus, that it could never really have an end, despite the fact that it has a, a relentless imposition of needing an end in much mainstream educational discourse. <laughs> Or perhaps he could be referring to the over-reliance on fantasy in teaching, which is something I'll come back to later. Um, Freud also claims in his 1909 lectures to Clark University that education was part of the great process of civilization, one of the many institutions that regulate sexual desire by offering a mild narcosis to redirect or partially satisfy the drives. Already, we are thinking about enjoyment here. 
as though there are episodic highs in education of getting a top grade, moving into an advanced class, uh, seeing another student understand the nuances of Shakespeare, ultimately education tends to actually breed discontent amongst its subjects. It's no wonder that in our time at school, where no one wants to resign from their own immediate satisfaction, most people aren't really enjoying themselves. Freud, and then later Bettelheim, asked that every teacher undergo psychoanalysis, um, an idea that raises interesting questions regarding what the teacher does when they are teaching. And although I think he and Bettelheim realised that it was fairly kind of preposterous to actually ask that everybody did undergo psychoanalysis, it raises the question that are teachers always aware what they are doing when they teach? Are they repeating trauma? Are they acting on an unconscious drive? Are they transferring love? Are they, on a level that they might be unaware of, enjoying themselves? Freud's insights are still important for the challenges he brings to much of educational thinking. Um, he called his discovery of the unconscious the third Copernican discovery. So with Copernicus, we have um, you know, the decentering of man in the universe, that we are not you know, the centre of everything. His second Copernican discovery was, was Darwin, that we're not you know, um, left, but we're not the creatures you know, of God. And the third Copernican discovery is that of the unconscious, because not only are we not centre of the universe, and not only are we God, not God's sons, we are also not even masters of our own house. And so we completely lack this kind of sense of agency that the Enlightenment has led us to believe that we have. Um, and arguably, a lot of educational kind of thinking has become deeply entrenched in this Enlightenment ideal of absolute knowing that is very much challenged by the Freudian unconscious. Uh, this is this classic diagram of id-ego, super-ego, division, conscious, pre-conscious and unconscious. Um, something I'll come back to later when we look at uh, uh, the super-ego. Um, I imagine people are at least familiar with the idea of the unconscious. Um, I'll just give you my one sort of maxim about it that I always talk to my students, um, is that we can't access the unconscious, but it can access us. And perhaps that's the most straightforward way of thinking about it. Um, so I want to move on to thinking about the idea of the subject. Um, the subject is fundamental to all psychoanalysis, but particularly Lacanian thought. Uh, just as subjects are fundamental to teaching. There's a powerful and largely unexplored correspondence between these two different registers. What is referred to as an individual, a person or a being, Lacan refers to as the subject, the being that is created in and by language or the enunciating subject, as he calls it. Um, they are both enunciated and they enunciate their subjectivity. So in the strange place of the school, something I'll get to later, uh, we find that the subject not only enunciates their subjectness, but also enunciates by and through the signifier teacher, or often as students do, through the signifier student. But interestingly, if you ask a group of students or teachers what the subject is, they usually respond with something like English, math, sociology, law, philosophy, psychology. Um, and in this strange environment of the school, you might say, well, I am an English student. Well, I am a biology student. I am an English teacher. Well, I am a law teacher. And they become um, ways of distinguishing and expressing oneself as a subject through a subject. What Lacan would identify is that these people, these subjects, are actually confronting each other only through their subjects. 
there are two signifiers that represent one another, not a real subject interacting with another one, um, but a signifier interacting with another signifier, which starts to present a split between the subject itself and the thing they enunciate themselves as. So for this reason, um, Lacan presents the subject with a symbol of a barred S. So always, whenever he says subject, it's always an S with a line through it. And this idea of the split, the bar, the cut, the wound, is something I'll keep coming back to. Um, the bar is important for it signifies the divided nature of the subject who speaks itself as one. Um, essential elements of Freudian psychoanalysis give weight to this division. So he presents the divide between the conscious and the unconscious, between the id-ego and super-ego, for example. Um, so they define the subject from the get-go as someone who is unable to, to know the dimensions of themselves with any stable or rational confidence. Freud also intensifies this early severing um, between the baby and the mother's breast as another cut that has to happen for all subjects. And that's a primal trauma that's then intensified by the psychoanalyst Kristeva in her assertion that um, the subject is abjected through the very necessitated act of being birthed. And thus we are all ejected and rejected from the mother. So another kind of primordial cut that we must all go through. Though these divisions are important, and remind us of the fundamentally wounded or severed nature of the subject, Lacan's key insight is that the subject is barred, cut, or divided by the signifier. As a speaking subject, to enunciate oneself as such, or as a teacher, requires the use of a specific cluster of already established and ordered words or signifiers. To proclaim oneself as a teacher is to pluck a signifier from the realm of language, so to substantiate yourself as a subject, to be able to express who or what I am, I have to pick something from this pre-existing kind of realm of language and use that to give myself a sense of substantiality. But um, this teaching subject, this teacher who is the subject of a teacher, is not the signifier that they have plucked. They remain alienated from it, divided from it, and governed by its movements in its relation with other signifiers. As I will address later on, this signifier is what, for Lacan, allows the subjects to enjoy themselves. Um, this division of the subject also occurs because the subjects must say what they want. So if you ask teachers what they want, and you know, you'll see this a lot in um, kind of teaching and learning meetings, especially the ones that sort of happen at the start of every year, you know, what should we be doing? What do we want for our students? And you often hear words like, um, I want to help the students get the best grades possible to get good grades. I want to get them into uni. You know, that's something that my college always say, that we are here to help students get into the best possible unis. That's what we're all about. Um, and then some teachers are like, well, I want to help them really love learning. I want to help them, you know, find a passion for the subject. And, and these sorts of things are the kind of things we hear from teachers all the time. Um, many of these answers are often easily explained by the neoliberal agenda that haunts contemporary education, um, especially things like helping students get good grades or getting into uni. But the Lacanian dimension allows us to explore the structure of education beyond this neoliberal managerialization of learning. As though the likes of good grades and getting into unis might prescribe to an instrumentalisation of education, Perhaps teachers still claim they believe in educating the student in some more far-reaching, maybe even redemptive manner. Undoubtedly, this is where the enjoyment for many teachers lies, 
in the belief that they are doing something that will allow their students to change themselves, really change themselves, and change the world in turn. But this, of course, presupposes knowing the desires of the student or the other, as Lacan would say. The change at the level of the unconscious is ultimately unknowable to both the student and the teacher. Thus, this desire for real change is one that offers a somewhat hollow feeling of enjoyment. Furthermore, in this presumption to know the desires of the students, we might note that some students have no interest at all in bettering themselves for education. It is a desire they are impelled to carry through the subject of the teacher. So only the teacher enjoys in this instance. They enjoy what they believe to be the other's enjoyment as they uphold what Lacan would refer to as fantasy. <clears throat> so desires are, for Lacan, sustained by fantasy. There's an important link between desire and fantasy. He has a, a ridiculous formula for this that I won't give you. Um, but the, the idea of fantasy is there to sustain desire. How would things you know, be desirable if we didn't have a fantasy to make us desire them? Um, and this fantasy comes from the realm of what he calls the imaginary. And I'll talk about these three things, these three registers that he has, the imaginary, the symbolic and the real, which I think are some very important and powerful dimensions for thinking about schools and thinking about teaching and education more broadly. So to give an example of thinking about fantasy and desire um, that will help us kind of unravel this idea. So the desire that one student holds for a, a very certain university, for example, might be sustained by the fantasy image they have of themselves in that institution. Uh, it's likely laced with images of student life from films and TV and probably traced with the cachet of the signifier of that institution's name, that the signifier of that place carries a weight to it that makes it something that appears desirable. We might also see how their desires are being enunciated by the signifiers that are available to them in the world they reside in. So when you ask a student, what is it that you really want? What do you want? Or, oh, I want to go to X uni. What they really want has, again, been plucked from this, this realm of language that is around them. Um, many often talk about how capitalism has capitalised our desire, but what of the school? What if being educated is another fantasy that is being grasped at, that sustains a sort of enjoyment in the school for the teacher, as in this example of the fantasy of the student? Um, this strange world of the school that I keep referring to is what Lacan would call the symbolic order. So I keep on talking about signifiers. Well, the symbolic order is when we order the world into chains and patterns of signifiers. It's a shape, almost, that we can give. Um, it's a shape of a realm of language, the one that we pluck from, that we pluck signifiers from to give ourselves a sense of substance as a subject. So for the day-to-day -day of education, some subjects identify as students, others as teachers... They're in learning spaces like classrooms where progress happens via pedagogy. It's punctuated by assessment. And so there is a grammatical pattern to all of this. Um, there is a shape and ordering, and this is what constitutes the, the symbolic order. Um, but like in the syntax of grammar, there's also a direction. You know, grammar always orders words in a certain direction. And if you break that direction and that order, the grammar doesn't make sense. And this is the same for us with the symbolic order. Um, <clears throat> the direction for education 
is an upward curve that always we order signifiers as if they are going upwards. So towards something. It could be a punctuating signifier like progress or the future or a career or even just being educated could be the signifier that punctuates this kind of grammar of education. <clears throat> Students are regularly told that even if this is boring and irrelevant, it makes you a more well-rounded human being. Thus, the claim goes in the classroom that if all of the signifiers that I'm talking about interact as they should, children will go on to some sort of prosperity and happiness, and so might we all. But here we return to Lacan's claim of the subject. It is divided, and it will never be whole. It always remains cut, lacking, with some kind of division within it. So the symbolic order that students and teachers exist in proclaims an eventual wholeness that can perhaps never be reached, only a signifier of completeness that is actually signified from the subject, which only further keeps us lacking in our wholeness. So just to re reiterate everything I've said so far, um, we have subjects, teachers and students. We have the imaginary, uh, a belief in the fantasy of education. We have a symbolic order, which is the ordering of signifiers in the shape of education, and most commonly the school. Um, but then something lingers beyond all of these different aspects for Lacan, and this is the real. The real is the monstrous and horrifying, unnameable thing that seeps through the cracks of the symbolic. Okay. So somebody once gave me a great example of when you're walking down the pavement, um, you know, in a, in a built-up area, and you, you are existing within the realm of the symbolic, but occasionally, uh, you know, a, a poppy will break through the cracks of the pavement as this lingering reminder that there's something that's kind of untamable. And that's like the real popping through the symbolic. And we have this in, in schools as well. Do all students really believe that they would reach fulfilment if they obtained the educationally inflected desires they spoke of? Do we believe that? Does the graffiti that's etched into a desk break down the symbolic wholeness of the classroom? Does the metal fencing around schools leave a lingering trace of something far more monstrous in the real of this world? Many of these real intrusions happen, but they are repressed very quickly by teachers and students alike, so we can uphold the symbolic dimension of education's upwards curve. So, despite the interminable inability of especially schools to produce the sorts of redemptive outcomes that it claims to, and the numerous moments, you know, many more beyond what I've mentioned, of the real breaking through, uh, many still hold on to a belief in the consistency and solidity of the educational symbolic order. As I have said, there is an enjoyment in this fantasy, allowing for the subject of the teacher to give themselves a sense of purpose and wholeness and so forth. Um, but it's harder and harder to deny the real trauma that many students find in facing the demand to belong in education's symbolic order. They must achieve the fantasy that sustains the teacher's desire to teach them, or they face the harsh hand of discipline or of failure. So many students can and do speak to the painful experiences of school, many involving racism, classism, sexism, mental health difficulties. And here, every time the real breaks through the symbolic upwards curve. So these three registers of symbolic, real and imaginary um, bring in other complications for the enjoyment of the subject of the teacher. Are they enjoying only at the level of the imaginary via a fantasy? 
Is there a real enjoyment that can be pursued within the classroom as a teacher? And how does enjoyment intersect with the issues that I have raised currently faced in education? Okay. Just to take a, a slight detour. I'm a, love, a big architecture lover. Um, I like your building very much. This is very nice. Um, to understand enjoyment, we might think about the architect Le Corbusier. He proposed in his 1923 tract towards a new architecture that utility should be placed at the front and centre of architecture as opposed, to, as opposed to flourish, adornment and excess. So my description of the educational symbolic order as it stands in the contemporary moment embodies similar ideas to what Le Corbusier um, proposed in that this quite heavily utilitarian or instrumentalised aspects of education have been placed at the forefront of modern schooling, something that's clearly enjoyed by the politicians, bureaucrats and educational resource companies that are thriving off this growing agenda. Le Corbusier's important addendum to his architectural maxim, however, was that things of utility might also yield pleasure. So we only need to look at the Villa Savoy, or his Marseille housing units that were designed by Corbusier to see how this could be so. That in the simplicity and functionality of the form that makes them pleasurable. Some will, I imagine, argue similar points about teaching and about pedagogy, that in its simplest and most didactic and instrumentalist form, there is still a pleasure to be found. So those of us, and I expect there are some of those people amongst us, who enjoy attending classic lectures with a clear understanding that we are learning to pass an exam, they would embody this kind of space of, even within utility, there's still a pleasure to be found. And these subjects do exist, but that might be because of the fantasy that comes with it. What Lacan does is invert Le Corbusier's maxim that rather than just utility can have pleasure, as is manifest in, the, manifest in the international architecture movement, he notes that pleasure can have utility. So it's here that we find something that many teachers regularly profess and perhaps contend is where their enjoyment lies, that students should find some pleasure in their learning, even if it is for the tedious utilitarian function of the neoliberal schooling age, and that the teacher will enjoy seeing the student reaching their potential or fall in love with a text or, you know, getting the highest grade. But real enjoyment in the Lacanian sense, and I'll come back to this word jouissance later on, um, would stretch much further than this slightly glib claim that teachers would simply aim to bring more pleasure into their classrooms, so to enable educational utility. Indeed, the teachers that expound these kind of pleasure plus utility pedagogies are perhaps even more troubling from the Lacanian perspective than the simply utilitarian ones. Those who make claims that lessons should be fun and exciting, usually through a game or an activity, are to be viewed with a critical eye from the Lacanian perspective. Because there are multiple issues here. For one, the need to turn pleasure into utility falls back into a fantasy of educational redemption or into a neoliberal fantasy of future career success, a fantasy that's very quickly unravelling in front of our eyes at the moment with the uh, you know, <coughs> mass amounts of high performance that's happening in schools and colleges and universities without the accompanying careers to go with them. But the more powerful Lacanian insight into the notion that pleasure can have utility is not that we can deploy pleasure for utilitarian ends, 
but that we do not and cannot know what the pleasure is that we seek. For the subject, whether that be a teacher or student or anyone else, <coughs> to quote Joan Kopchak, being subject to a principle beyond pleasure is not driven to seek his own good. So I would argue this pertains to the teacher more deeply than many other positions in society. For the teacher is a subject to, when pressed on what they do, tends to claim that they are trying to seek some form of good through the act of education, making a difference, enriching lives, having a meaningful role in society, for example, are often cited as reasons to become teachers. And if any of you have ever read kind of application forms for initial teacher training programmes, this is often the kind of discourse that's very present there. It's very commonly about wanting to make some form of meaningful difference in the world. But once again, this is problematised by Lacan. The teacher, as a subject, cannot seek good for all because they cannot know the good that exists beyond even their own pleasure. Even the very notion of good in psychoanalytic terms, might be inflected with much darker and more taboo desires due to the nature of the unconscious. So that brings us to, back to this diagram and thinking about the superego. So the good that is nevertheless called for in education might be the call of what Freud famously calls the superego. Uh, so the popular understanding of the superego is it's the part of the psyche that has acquired morals, ethics, social mores, and so forth. But the Lacanian superego is something more terrifying. So Kopchek describes it as a malign, noxious neighbour who will spare us no cruelty in the accrual of its own pleasure. The superego is the sadistic source of our moral law. We might jump to the figure of Ofsted, an omnipresent gaze that judges the supposed quality of the school and the teachers within. But the gaze of this body remains broadly outside of the school, even if it seeps its way into the daily practices of it and occasionally walks through the door. Rather, the superegoic structure is more applicable to the very body of schooling and teaching itself. The student, in their entering of the very space of the school and the domain of the teacher, must be subjected to the symbolic order of the school, a space that functions as the malign and noxious superego figure, one that seems to be accruing more and more pleasure with, as I mentioned at the start, the growing acts of authoritarianism. This is not particular to the likes of the aforementioned Michaela schooling. Um, speaking anecdotally, everyday examples are commonplace in most educational settings, where teachers take great pleasure in shouting at, disciplining, isolating and excluding students. I have had teachers profess um, pleasure to me that they felt in making a student cry or in having a student fail and the joy that they felt when this happened. There is enjoyment here for certain, the sadistic enjoyment of the superego, which is upheld by the fantasy that, well, this is for the good of the student. If that student cried, well, this is ultimately for their good because of the importance of their education. If that student fails, teaches them an important lesson. Because really there's an assistance that the students and teachers must love thy superego as thyself. That is, they must love the teacher, they must love the becoming educated that is on, off on offer, and must know that all punishment is for their own good. We should not be naive enough to believe that every student who enters into the classroom bows willingly to its super-egoic demands, or commands, really. 
Uh, usually it's quite the opposite. Most students find some way of resisting, whether small or radical. Um, it could be a pin badge on their blazer lapel. It could be an untucked shirt. It could be a throne chair or a fuck you to the superegoic space they are impelled symbolically to be in. Teachers often attempt to regulate this boundless enjoyment that's found in the resistance to the superego, making claims to the enjoyment, as I said earlier, to be found in learning. If they just listen or pay attention or attend, they will claim this is where the real enjoyment lies, that, as I've said before, not every student does find. So I want to move on to this word, jouissance. Um, so I should probably rewind and ask what we really mean by enjoyment. I've used the word somewhat interchangeably with pleasure, happiness and fun throughout the talk. But if you want to truly explore enjoyment in the Lacanian sense, there's some more work to be done. Jouissance, the original French for what is loosely translated as enjoyment in the English, is more than just a feeling of satisfaction or pleasure. Teaching, for example, is often satisfying when all the books are marked or you finish a topic with a class. And there are times even when there is pleasure, often in the more boundless moments of student interaction around a topic that the teacher is passionate about. But jouissance goes beyond these more mundane affects to something that is precisely that of the beyond. Indeed, transgression can be a source of enjoyment such as in my previous examples of the, the student defying the educational superego. Jouissance is also, to quote Lacan, what serves no purpose. Unlike the overturned maxims of Le Corbusier that pleasure can have utility, enjoyment is without utility. This is why it's so difficult to think about in the symbolic order of teaching that prioritises the utility of knowledge and instrumentality. Even in the commonly cited myth of an education without utility, where learning is learning for learning's sake. The very notion of the sake is still a purpose. So this might yield pleasure, but not necessarily enjoyment. Lacan also believes that jouissance is an imperative from the superego. We are being told to enjoy ourselves by the very limits that the superego imposes on us. So as such, jouissance takes many forms. Some of the forms I've expressed already in this talk, for example, the jouissance of the other that occurs when we proclaim that students really want to learn and would find enjoyment in it if they're just knuckled down, or from the student who throws a chair in the face of being told to do such things by the teacher. But these also yield to the creep of authoritarianism. They call for more discipline, justify the cruel acts of slant and other similar policies that we see across the country. So in this sense, there is enjoyment for the teacher, but only in ways that we might find troubling or violent. There are, I contend, other forms of enjoyment taking place from the position of the teacher that we should be concerned by. What the teacher often contends with is what Lacan refers to as phallic jouissance, something else that Lacan ties to the superego and its imperative that we enjoy. So we may know, you can see the, the very obvious phallus that I've put behind me as well, uh, we may know of the ostensibly sexist theory of Freud's, that little boys one day discover they have a penis which becomes a great source of anxiety for them in the fear of castration, whereas little girls encounter the penis and envy it due to their lack. This process is tied to the Oedipus complex, to castration anxiety, and to the often phallic readings of dreams we might think of in psychoanalytic parlance. But Lacan once again offers an interesting reformulation of Freudian thought. 
For him, the penis envy, rather, sorry, rather than penis envy, i.e. a reference to the appendage, envy exists within the imaginary and the symbolic realm via the phallus only as another signifier, one that we imbue with lots of power due to the way it always remains veiled, but ultimately one that exists only in symbolic relation to other lacking signifiers. Really, it is not held by anyone. The boy may be led to believe symbolically that he has it, and the little girl may be led to believe symbolically that the boy has it and she doesn't. But as an aspect of the symbolic, it is ultimately held by no one. Everyone is thus castrated by this lack. And we might remember that a lack or a cut is essential to the theory of the Lacanian subject. In terms of phallic jouissance, this is the enjoyment that is to be found in the belief that one possesses and uses the phallus. So crudely put, the enjoyment of putting something into an empty space. As I have said, many teachers might be experiencing this mode of jouissance in the manner in which they teach the other. They believe inserting knowledge into the heads of the student. This Lacanian perspective echoes um, Freire's critique of the banking model of education, where the teacher teaches and the students are taught. The teacher knows everything and the student knows nothing. The teacher thinks and the students are thought about. A model that upholds oppression and neatly mirrors the pedagogy of right-wing and authoritarian education growing in many schools. At the heart of Freire's critique is the notion um, that students are treated as empty vessels to be filled, a constitution of lack from the oppressor that is to be, the educator says, remedied by education. Freire's counter-pedagogical model, critical pedagogy, aims towards a situation that seems to mirror Lacan's symbolic and real dimension, where, and this is to quote Freire, the subject recognises himself in the object, recognises the object as a situation he finds himself in, together with other subjects. So this is a move to apprehending what Fiera takes as reality, so to allow the subjects of his head pedagogy to critically intervene. But his conceptions of subjects, relations, and pedagogy require further consideration when we're thinking about the Lacanian pursuit of uh, jouissance. So what this paper is not is another call for critical pedagogy as the remedy to the current educational moment. For one... Freire retains the idea that the subjects can be made whole, whereas in Lacan they always remain always already lacking. No model of education could remedy this primordial lack, though perhaps could allow us to understand it better. Furthermore, the Lacanian aphorism that there is no phallus, that the subject is castrated, and thus the pedagogical relation the teacher believes is occurring, is actually not occurring at all. Many other unconscious elements may permeate this relation, but the phallic one is symbolic only. So the enjoyment that so many teachers like them fi likely find themselves you know, feeling is both one of a political concern, if we believe what Freire says, and one without any real substance, if we believe what Lacan says. As um, Britzman asks, might the subject of the teacher, when teaching, be inseparable from the anticipations, wishes, ideas, fantasies and beliefs they hold for education, rather than the relation they believe to be taking place or wish was taking place? Does the moment that even the idealised educational forum of critical pedagogy actually pertain to the pure educational goal that has been set, or does it really trade in the real, no matter what form it takes? We might even say that such a belief in any pedagogical relation 
is an attempt to hide the castration of the subject of the teacher, to maintain the belief that they hold the phallus, they hold the knowledge, and that could be imparted to the other. Um, so to finish, I just want to venture some other ideas about the jouissance of the teacher that do not embody the acts I have mentioned previously that we might find more troublesome. So for Lacan, uh, he makes an interesting claim that I alluded to earlier. The signifier is the cause of jouissance. The signifier of the phallus, or the noxious superego, or in the fantasy of educational progress, are all causes of a certain type of enjoyment, after all. But if we take the signifier on its own terms, not as language, but as the thing that has meaning effects, we might, might start to find a place in the classroom where the teacher can enjoy. So if we think of a child learning to speak, this is what Lacan refers to as la langue, and he um, separates this from parole as a different type of language. So my daughter's 17 months old now, and the enjoyment that I saw in her when she strung together sounds for the first few times, or when she learnt to say, not identify, flower, or when she listens to my wife and I talk and laugh, is a sort of enjoyment that we rarely consider. Children sometimes sneak downstairs from bed to sit on the stairs just to listen to their parents talking to their friends, even if they don't understand the words being exchanged. It is the enjoyment of the signifier, not the sign, which is the signifier with its kind of referent attached to it, but purely the signifier itself. So it's not about understanding, but only saying and listening. Lacan looks at it another way through James Joyce, and he pops up in a few of his um, Lacan's works. Um, a figure, James Joyce, who uses a signifier not to seek understanding, but really for its enjoyment alone. So normally Finnegan's Wake is the example um, that Lacan uses. I haven't read Finnegan's Wake, so I'm going to use an example from Ulysses instead. Um, so a quote from Ulysses. Ineluctable modality of the visible, at least that if no more, thought through my eyes... Signatures of all things I'm here to read. Sea spawn and sea wreck, the nearing tide, that rusty boot. Snot green, blue silver, rust coloured signs. These words start to push beyond the limits of language, but they are very much la langue. They are an operation of the signifier. They are, in a way, without purpose, and to revel in them is to enjoy. The signifiers fit together, they combine, and they concertina, just like a patient sitting in a session of psychoanalysis who starts to unconsciously weave together the signifiers of their dreams, their traumas, their desires, their self. But jouissance would not be teaching James Joyce. That would be seeking to understand the signifiers that Joyce uses. It would be imposing the phallus back on the signifier to make it the act of insertion. It's the reading the speaking that is imbued with jouissance. In the classroom, if we speak, listen, not engage in any pedagogical relation, but rather in the play of the signifier, there might be a jouissance to be found. It is not something we would call educational, but we might find it enjoyable. We must learn to enjoy the signifier in the relation between teacher and student, not for the utility that the signifier brings, but merely for the signifier itself. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a lecture by Dr. Nicholas Stock. For more, follow him at Twitter at 89stock. Links to everything can be found at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. And now the song, The Subject's Inner Experience, from a new album, a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy, called Indulgence, Not Abstinence. You can find it at Pete Murphy's Bandcamp, petemurphy.bandcamp.com. Pete has also recently uploaded almost all of our music to Spotify and other streaming services. Find Vanessa Sinclair and Pete Murphy at Spotify or wherever you love to stream your music. Enjoy. Hiking focused on the health of the new class of industrial workers while the cut of my practice I'm talking about real life, a magical ritual, an artistic creation, the space created in the analytic session, their epistemology over time, at the same, inside and out. I see this as the responsibility of each generation, an individual who is not himself a combatant and so is a cog in the gigantic machine of war. The subject's inner experience is always being in the world rather than simply and itself. Imagine a world without marketing and advertising. Delight. The easiest money you'll ever make. Subjects were fragmented, broken down into absurd destiny, and drank soda and microdosed on LSD. They are less than that. But alas, no, and blood just like me and you. This was not something seen as acceptable or an organism fly, they achieved complete feeling of discomfort in the viewer without substance, a new form of tangible reality. Indeed, to be 23 minutes of the meaning that is recorded, but a silent documentary, what happens next? Just as in dreams and in hypnosis, thoughts, concepts, minds, 